Let me show you how it's done. Well, well, welcome. You are listening to The Drop, Drop, Drop. podcast on business, tech, and influence. I am one half of The Drop, Tam Danier, head of strategy. I lead insights and product. I focus on tech, in particular, solutions that solve real-world problems. And I'm here with... My name is B. Pagels Minor. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. I have been a product manager for over a decade at some of the world's most well-respected companies like Sprout Social, Apple, and Netflix. I've led teams that built important parts of the App Store, launched games at Netflix, built listening at Sprout Social. All in all, my DNA is fully being a product manager. Hi, everyone. We are back again this week. And this week, we actually have one of our favorite people on. His name is Brian Artiger. Brian is the founder of Inside Outside. Inside Outside actually is an amazing program that I got to speak at in Nebraska a couple of months ago, which you know something's pretty cool if it gets me to go to a whole new state that I've never been to, especially when there's only one direct flight each day. So it was, it was very harrowing, but it was an amazing experience. But before Inside Outside, Brian founded the Seed Stage Accelerator in Motion and co-founded the corporate innovation consultancy Econic. He has worked in Silicon Valley in Asia and served as chief marketing officer at Nano Nation, working with some of the best brands in the world, including Apple, Pepsi, Target, Nike, and Harley Davidson. And in fact, he actually has a new book out called Accelerated, which is amazing. It's all about innovation and all the other good stuff that he's learned over time. And then also, Brian is currently involved in, in driving the Midwest innovation ecosystem through initiatives such as the Rise of the Rest, Startup Week, Lean Startup Circle, Pipeline, entrepreneurs, and the Jumpstart Challenge. He's received awards for his work from the Lincoln Partnership for Economic Development, Prosper Lincoln, and two coveted prairie dogs from Silicon Prairie News. Brian has contributed to industry publications such as the Wall Street Journal, Inc., Entrepreneur, and Fortune Asia. He's also a public speaker and investor. And Brian has over two decades of experience in digital media, marketing, consulting, and research. And Brian's work is close to my heart, so being someone who lived in the Midwest for almost 15 years and know how great the people are out there. And it's so amazing to have people like Brian really making sure that they have equal opportunities to accelerate their projects. Welcome to the podcast, Brian. Hey, thank you very much for having me. This has been great. So Brian, let's just like, oh, yeah, let's get into the hard stuff really quickly, right? Because like, why wait to rip the bandaid? Just rip it off. Some of the things that you and I talked about is the fact that innovation is hard. And so can you go into, like, why is it so hard to be innovative? Yeah, I think, you know, innovation, I think a lot of people get stumped by it because it's such a nebulous word. Everybody talks about it, but nobody really knows what it is. Immediately, a lot of people think, oh, I've got to be innovative. i got to come up with the next flying car or next light bulb. And while that is innovation, I think a lot of people leave a lot of value on the table because they have a very narrow view of innovation. In my opinion, innovation is nothing more than finding an idea and cr taking that idea the next step and creating value from it. So it can be something that anybody can do. It's basically finding an opportunity, finding a problem, solving that problem, creating value and making something happen in the world. So your answer actually kind of makes me think of something else, which is like basically hinted at people have are confused about what innovation really means. So maybe let's take a step back and even like get even simpler. Like what is innovation? How would you define a company that you think is innovative or what is the result of innovation? Like how can someone determine, oh, I might be innovative? Yeah. So I think a lot of it comes back to uh, and why like corporations have a tr tough time innovating is because they figured out a lot of this stuff corporations, if they've been around a while, they've figured out a business model that works. They have a set of customers that they're working on, set of products. 
and their job is to optimize and execute on that business model. And a lot of times they forget about the exploration side and innovation happens in that exploration. That's why startups are really good at it because in that exploration side, it's all about navigating the uncertainty and the unknowns of that. When you think about spinning up any idea, oftentimes you don't know what you don't know. And so it's about taking that little nugget of an idea, thinking through it, trying to figure out the path to get it to move forward and navigating all the uncertainty. And I think that's where a lot of people struggle. It's that knowing that that space between exploration and execution. And I think a lot of people focus on the execution side and not, and aren't really able to explore very effectively. I'm curious about this exploration thing. Um, what do you think prevents a company from exploring effectively? What do you think the challenges are to exploring effectively? I know personally for myself, being someone who worked at like the Apples and Netflixes of the world and realized that it was actually really hard to do really cool new stuff at those companies. I agree with your point, which is that, you know, already have business models that work. And so there's like, obviously, and then you usually have stakeholders, whether those people are people who own the stock, whether it's actually employees who are just like, well, like we really need to make sure thing that we already have does well. If you're Google, you can't have any less searches. So like we have to make right. sure that we're incentivizing people to keep doing these searches, right? Because that's what we primarily make our money on. What do you think um, makes it so difficult? Is it just because like it's they're fat and happy? And so they're just like, well, I want to exercise. Exercise is hard <laughs> when I'm fat and happy already. Or just something else. Yeah, well, it's not just fat and happy. The mindset of playing not to lose. They have a lot more to lose. If you think about startup, uh, the worst thing that can happen is they go out of business. And that's typically what happens to startup, most of the startups anyway. So if you have an existing company and you've got thousands of employees and millions of dollars of revenue that you know how to actually capture in the marketplace, the the risks of losing that or rubbing your toe along the way are much greater. So people na naturally get more conservative around it and they start playing not to lose. And so I think that's one of the mindsets of, of how do you get people to accelerate their innovation is first to think about innovation differently. Again, thinking about the fact that you don't have to change the world. You don't have to have uh, the next flying car. You can approach innovation incrementally and you can ap approach innovation as a way to incrementally add value. And as you build that muscle in the organization or in yourself, you will build that muscle of innovation. You're going to create additional types of value that will allow you to swing bigger later on because you've built up the muscles at the beginning of doing small baby steps along the way. One thing, I think we all have like a lot of experiences in and outside organizations. And one of the things that I've seen is that to B's point about not being incentivized to be innovative because they have this big engine that they need to keep alive. It also means that there's a lot of things that would have to change if they all of a sudden went to this growth trajectory of a new innovative idea. Do they have the kind of people that can pivot to that new initiative? One of the things that companies tend to do a lot is they hire experts in a field. And sometimes that's a good thing and sometimes that's a bad thing. When you have an expert who's deeply ingrained in a certain industry, that is all that they see. AC yep. Penny hires Ron Johnson from Apple because of what he did at Apple and they think do it for us, but that's all he knows, right? At least in this instance, that's all he's going to bring to the table. He's not incentivized to see anything else. So when you hire a bunch of people that are there, that are skilled in this way to complete some initiative, and now you're saying, well, we need a growth thing and that growth thing might be something different. What are you going to do with all of these people here? Is one of the questions that happens in companies and one of the reasons why I think innovation 
is really hard to accomplish internally. The other thing is the definition to what Brian was saying as well. The definition of what innovation is that people tend to think it must be the flying car. Um, And it's not. Innovation is just anything new that creates value. And sometimes that's just taking a step into the right direction. I also want to say this. I want to hear your opinion on this. My opinion on innovation, it is not a forward thinking label. It is a backwards label. It is something that we apply after the fact. We realize something is innovative when we understand the value that is created into the world, not beforehand. And so these titles like innovation consultant, I always felt very weird about saying that. innovation manager, I don't know what the hell that is, you are not being innovative because you you did something or you combined two things that weren't combined before and all of a sudden that's innovation. I hear that a lot as well. We're doing this and this and they've never been done before. Brian, one time on my desk, something passed uh, by for me to review, the idea of a vending machine selling pizza. This was being lauded as innovative. And I said, let's pause for a second. The very invention of a vending machine was to sell food. The idea that now you're selling pizza some hundred years later is not innovation. Just because it's never been done before doesn't mean that it's innovative. So I think that there's that nomenclature that happens. But then there's also this idea of what does it take to just go to the next step? And that requires like some human empathy and understanding where the customer is. But that's my diatribe on that. I think you're spot on. It's our definition of it and who you have in charge of it is those two things. Yeah, I mean, about it. So if you're a corporation and you're a product manager or something and you have a particular position to fill and you hire to fill that particular position with an expert or a person who can execute on that 100%, it's not necessarily a founder you're going to hire or somebody who has a broad different industries or things along those lines. You're hiring to execute on a particular task and problem. And I think you stack that over time and over each particular team and over everybody in the executive team, everybody that you hire is again, hired and incentivized to keep that engine going that you've built. Having said that, I think the reason why it's so important to think about innovation is because the world is changing some multiple technologies hitting at once. You've got access to markets. You've got more venture capital and access to capital in general to start up and spin up ideas that your ability to maintain that existing engine for a long period of time, like you could do in the forties and you could keep that business going forever without pivoting or changing is gone. And you know, that time is shrinking. And so if that's the case that we're living in, then it's going to be a requirement for everybody in the organization to start building these muscles of innovation, to get a little bit more comfortable with being uncomfortable, getting a little bit more comfortable with trying new things, a little bit more comfortable with exploring areas that they haven't explored in the past, because that's those are the people that are going to have the ability to adapt and thrive in a, an environment of constant change. I agree with you. There's a lot of benefit for having employees relearn what innovation is, readjust the expectations of innovation. And there could be a lot of value. I think that there's a lot of movement that can be made internally in an organization just by reorienting that. The other part I think is a lot harder. I want to hear your opinion on that. The skills. There are some people who do not thrive in uncertainty. And there are those that do. And organizations, by and large, entrepreneurship is a testament to your ability to deal with uncertainty. 
And I worked for a bit in consulting. And one of the things I realized very early on was that consulting firms, the big four, they do not hire entrepreneurs. They hire college grads. This is fundamentally the biggest difference. And when I left, I said to myself, innovation will never happen at the big four for this very reason. So how does an organization, if they realize that we are not hiring people who can deal with uncertainty, this is a certain type of a person. We are hiring people who execute very well, right? They love their processes. They do a very good job. But to go into the innovation realm, we need this other skill. How do you contend with that? Is that a training thing? Is that a, what do you do? I don't think it's going to happen overnight for most corporations. And I think that's quite frankly why most corporations aren't very good at innovation and why you see a lot of innovation initiatives fail. I think one of the first things you have to do, and this is one of the things we did at Nelnet to kind of try to identify those early adopters, if you will, of innovation. Our job was to first identify the folks in the organization who were what we call the curious and the restless. The folks that were more apt to either have some kind of a background or just interest in exploring and looking at new things. And so one of the ways we did that is we created a program called Spark. And this is something we learned in the startup realm when working with startup ecosystems. There's a program out there called uh, One Million Cups, which the Kauffman Foundation started, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. And th- the way that that particular program runs, it's I think it runs in about 100 cities around the world where an entrepreneur gets on stage every Wednesday morning and talks about what they're building in front of the community. And the community can give them feedback and they can get some help along the way, which is pretty interesting if that works in the startup realm, what if we took that concept and applied it internally to our own business units? And so we created this thing called Spark. And so once a month, we put an interesting project on stage and that person can talk about it. And in front of a wide variety of folks that volunteer to say, hey, I'd love to see what you're building and see if we can help out. So through that process, we've been doing it for almost four years now and we record them each week. And what we found is one, it gives us a really good look into the folks that are curious and restless, both for the people who are presenting the new ideas, as well as the people that come and listen and talk through those ideas. And then secondly, it gives us a platform to start telling the story about innovation and why it's important. And here's how people are doing it. And here's both the good things that are happening, as well as like some failures or things that aren't working. And what we found is that it's given us a way to kickstart some of these conversations that are very difficult to kickstart it unless you have some type of forum to, to make that happen. You're talking about this program. And so I'm kind of curious, like how often are these ideas successful? Do y'all actually pick them up and do them? Because I'm just wondering if like, you're like the exception who's actually been able to figure out actually how to do these interesting projects because for instance like something tam and i talk about all the time and one of the reasons that we're doing opening a insights and venture studio is because we found that companies often resort to m&a for these things but right. m&a doesn't work right because you have two divergent cultures who are now trying to come together and so what it actually ends up being is that you just got rid of your competition at the very least and we don't think that's a really effective way to innovate right it's like it's not great to just destroy a company that you had hoped to integrate into your company, it would be better to actually integrate that company. I'm curious about like what your success been like, or what do you think that you know, if we did this thing, I think we'd be even more successful with it. I'm kind of curious. Before you answer that, to add to that, I just want to put some stats in there. Yes, companies, when they cannot innovate, they turn to acquisition for innovation. But 10% of those efforts fail because the valuation was wrong. But more importantly, 70 to 90% of the integrations fail. So they, it, it does not achieve the hope that they wanted to. So yeah, I just wanted to throw that for context. So we fully understand invest in startups and that, and I've been involved in being a startup accelerator and that. So we know fully well that most ideas are going to fail. And so it's really a lot about 
taking a, a lot of shots on goal uh, and getting people comfortable with, hey, it's okay to throw out your first idea. It's probably going to be wrong and you're going to have to pivot, And but that's okay. This is the process. What we found though is most people are just are not familiar with that way of working. If you say, hey, do a project and you fail in a corporate environment, you're out the door. And you've that, that fear factor of making a mistake is kind of drained in that corporate environment. And so how do we make it easier for folks to raise their hand and say, hey, I've got an idea or I've got something here. It's It may or may not prove valuable, but can we at least um, put some effort around it to see if we can move it forward or not? And the more ideas, the faster we can move those forward, the more likely we'll be able to find one or two or three that could have those outsized returns if you worked it through. So we have a model that I write about in the book, Accelerated called the one, two, three, four model. And, and this is really just a way to think through and put a framework around this iterative betting process of taking an early stage idea and moving it to something of value. So the way it works is it's a time-based thing. So one is one minute, two is two hours, three is three days, and four is four weeks. And basically what we say is this framework, anybody in the organization should be taking a minute a day to write down What's a problem they've seen or what's an opportunity they've come across or what's some curiosity thing that kind of piqued their interest. And if you get enough people keep taking a one minute list of things that they've done over time, some of those things on that list are going to naturally kind of percolate to the top and say, yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot, or I've seen this happen more than once. I'm going to put a little bit more time or effort to see if to, to kind of see that idea. So you take it off the one minute list and you give it two hours. And in that two hours, you flesh it out. You kind of, you know, write down what you know about that problem. Who's the customer? What's the problem? How often does it happen? Do I know anything about the competition? All that kind of stuff. And just kind of framework for what this idea is. And then you start circulating it around. And we do that in this two-hour session where you could basically go grab a sandwich with a couple of people and say, here's the idea I've been thinking about. Do you know anything about this? Have you seen this? Can you help me figure out if I'm onto something or not? And after that two-hour conversation, typically what happens is it's either, yes, it's a good idea, but there's so much more research you should do, or here's five people you should talk to. And you can make the decision, is it worth putting the next bet on it? And the next bet could be three days. Very simple, three-day sprint to maybe talk to some customers, maybe start building out a prototype. But that next experiment is that you need to learn something. After that three days, again, you take a stock and say, does this does this idea have some value? Do we have any additional evidence over the course of three days that would allow us to say we want to take the next bet, which might be a four-week bet? And maybe that's when you spin up a, another person on the team or something. And again, the exact timing doesn't really matter. It's more about this incremental process of looking at an idea, exploring it, taking stock and saying, do we have enough evidence to put the next incremental dollars, cost, uh, courses behind it? and then move it to the next level. And what this does is it makes it simple because anybody can come up with one one minute idea. Anybody can really talk through an idea in two hours. And it starts building that muscle of exploration and moving ideas forward such that some of those, after a four-week kind of thing, will bubble to the top. And then maybe that's when you go and ask the manager for actual resources to, to move the idea forward. So one thing I'm kind of curious about, and this again is coming from my experience of working, especially in large corporations, 
how do you explain to people that they have the freedom to do this? Like, how do you mm-hmm. actually, because like, because I, I imagine when you first started, you're going to have a bunch of people, like you said, who have this fear mechanism, which is if I'm not succeeding every day, I'm probably going to get fired. So like, how do you first like kind of dispel that type of like hesitation or fear that might exist for people? And then secondly, how do you get introverts, like people who wouldn't normally speak up? How do you incentivize them also to participate at this high level? That's a great point. So a couple things on that. So one, this one, two, three, four process, dumb it down, so to speak, where anybody should be able to have find a minute in a day or two hours in a week or three days in a, every six months or so to look at ideas and explore those particular ideas. So we try to minimize it and we try to put it in such a way that where you don't have to come up with the, the complete business model plan and the complete PowerPoint deck and all the Excel sheets that you know that would typically be how you would present an idea. You'd go back, you'd think of an idea, you put the plan together, you'd go to the management and you say, here's the idea, fund us for $2 million in two years and we'll see if it works. Well, we know that doesn't work because your initial idea, your initial plans are going to go out the window as soon as you start talking to customers and figuring out what you didn't know <laughs> to begin with. And so like, how do you minimize the risk at each of these stages so that you don't even get to the point where you're making a, a quote unquote big bet until you have more evidence and more people behind you backing it to say, hey, this is worth some time or money to do the next experiment. And again, even after that four weeks, you're not asking for a complete team and $5 million. could be, I just need six more months to do these three experiments. And then we're going to think based on that, we'll be able to get to here. And then you can evaluate it from there. So that's one way is kind of make it so it's almost a side project set where it's like, here's my little side project I'm working on outside of what I normally do. And I'm circulating it around and getting buy-in and evidence for it so that when you do have something, you feel like you've got a nugget nugget of information, you have an objective conversation around it versus, hey, this is a cool idea. Trust me, give me a million dollars and let me make it happen. It's more about you incrementally move the idea forward from that perspective. And then to your point about how do you bring introverts along? Introverts can get involved in any part of the thing. They could be either the people that come up with the ideas. They could be part of the sounding crew. So they can just be part where they're adding back on, hey, yeah, I experienced that problem also. Or, hey, did you know that there's this research over here on this particular topic? And so, and again, if we take it away from the traditional path of how corporations combated ideas, like you came up with the idea, the extrovert came up with the idea, they built the whole plan, they pitched it, and then they got funding. This gives the access a, a little bit easier to move your way through it. Because again, it's you're presenting your results more on objective evidence from the marketplace versus my ability to charismatically you that this is something we should put money at. Question based on what you're talking about, you're talking about we give them the ability to explore and we follow this kind of checkpoint um, process to move it forward. What's the internal threshold for evidence that we should go to the next step? Is it very high? Is it different than what? And I'm going to tell you what I'm getting at. What I found in organizations is sure, they'll put these programs up and they'll say, Everybody is responsible for innovation. Everybody is welcomed here. But the internal threshold for what qualifies as something we'll work on is extremely high to the point that no ideas ever get worked on. And you still leave yourself at risk to the market of a startup who does not need a thousand data points to go on to the next step. How do you grapple with that as an organization? Mm -hmm. How do you design around that, the the bureaucracy that that the ideas could get squashed? Yeah, Yeah, B. 
And I think in, to add to that, uh, to what Tam just asked, I would also be curious, for instance, one of the big concerns is always, always the fiscal investment. Would you provide any recommendations for like, this is what I actually think companies should be allocating for this particular type of work too. So I think the two of those combined are really good things to understand what you think. Yeah, again, what we're trying to do is just de-risk it as much as possible and to limit the amount of resources that are needed to get it to the next stage. And so, again, we're trying to get rid of a lot of the bureaucracy around how ideas are typically funded or typically move forward. Again, if you think about it, most companies, most people who are developing new projects with, within a company immediately jump to probably over-allocating the resources that they actually need. They think they need a, a VP of sales and they need five developers and all this other stuff. And that may be what you need to kind of scale it out. But at the very beginning, oftentimes it's like, hey, can we do something this weekend that spins something up and talks to five customers and see if it actually works? And this incremental approach, again, it's a learning process and we're trying to teach people because this is not typically how folks work in an organization. And it's almost, here's how you do the side project. <laughs> and if you can get good at doing the side projects, some of these side projects are naturally going to get to a point where you can then put a more traditional scaling approach to it. The other thing I think is important is letting the teams that are, have the ideas work through them and have them be the ones responsible for saying, here's the next milestone, here's the next group of resources I need, and have them be held accountable, just like you would a startup. So if you think about, and we learn this through working with startups and investing in startups, it's like it's very much like the seed series A, B kind of step perspective, where the, the team is driving their company. They're saying at that next level, I need to get my series A investment to do X, Y, and Z. And then at the end of the, whatever that time frame is, they report back to the investors basically and say, here's where we're at. We either have traction or not. And the team can be the one saying, hey, this is not an idea I want to pursue um, because I can't get funding or because the it's not there. And it actually frees up a lot of people because I think a lot of people are scared to start ideas because they think if they start it, they've got to finish it. And a lot of times these ideas are not going to go anywhere. Most of them will fail. So it gives them the freedom to say after that two hour or the three hour, three day bet, or even the four week bet to say, hey, this is something that there's something there, but it's probably not what I want to pursue and or it's not going to be big enough. We're going to shelve that project and we're going to take another one off the, the list and, and push that through. So it, it gives some additional freedom to kill projects earlier than they typically would be killed as well. Do, how do organizations get their ideas? In this process, I'm hearing a lot of we're giving the freedom to employees to use a minute of their day to come up with a problem that they want to solve. In my mind, an organization that relies on the minute of the day that any employee has at any given time to come up with the problems to solve seems like they are leaving a lot on the table, right? Is there, what is the organization's involvement in surfacing up insights or opportunities to be working on? Are they leaving that up to the minute a day? Yeah. So the minute is, again, kind of a framework to get people bought into it that aren't typically bought into the exploration phase. So obviously there's new ideas getting created all over the company by different people, um, further baked than others. And there's also additional paths for those typical types of projects. I think a lot of it depends on the type of idea that is surfacing. So for example, ideas that are closer to the core, kind of horizon one types of innovations that you know the customer and you know the product, it's just maybe an incremental change or something like that. Those can go through that process pretty quick because you have a lot more known than that. And so you can push a lot of those ideas and the success of those projects are probably going to be higher than a brand new transformational idea. So knowing what type of 
problem is that you're and where does it sit within the organization can help identify how fast you move it, how do you sponsor it, all that kind of stuff. Um, but I think, it, again, at the end of the day, we're just trying to provide additional tool sets to get people more comfortable with becoming innovation accelerators, knowing full well that not everybody's going to be a founder, not everybody's going to do this, and not everybody should necessarily not built for it or, or don't want to do it. Uh, but we think if we provide this kind of framework and tool sets and culture and mindset, we will have more of those folks and more ideas and opportunities because of that long-term. I hear what you're saying. You're saying we want to create a mechanism to harness the intellectual power of all of our employees that may have an insight, however far flung it may be. We just want to create the mechanism to funnel that through. And I think I hear your point. Our employees are probably in the best position to work on H1 or Horizon 1 activities. They know the customer better than an external consultant would be. I actually, I think I buy into that argument, right? Yep. Can you define what Horizon is? Yeah. So the the Horizon, this came from McKinsey, uh, Horizon 1, 2, and 3. It's basically uh, innovation. Horizon 1 is innovation that's close to the core. Horizon 2 is adjacent to the core. So maybe it's you're working with the same customers, but you're delivering a different product, for example. So it's something about that particular area, but it's slightly adjacent to what you're doing now. And then Horizon 3 is kind of the transformational horizon where it's a lot of unknowns, different customer, different markets, and you're trying to do something brand new. Right. Horizon 1 might be personalization. Horizon 2 might be Uber Eats to Uber. Maybe same customer, new type of product would be in Horizon 2. And so the question goes to, great, our internal employees are probably best positioned to come up with Horizon 1 opportunity. But that still leaves us out in the loop for Horizon 2, Horizon 3. They're at risk of those kind of growth opportunities, which is where you see a lot of the M&A activity. What's your outlook on that? On, hey, how is a company going to gain the capacity to see Horizon 2, Horizon 3 opportunities internally? Or if that's not going to happen, are they going to turn to the outside markets in the coming years as well? Yeah, we definitely take a portfolio approach where we think that you should be putting bets on all the horizons. And the further out it goes, the more likely you are going to be looking outside to that. So we have a corporate venture arm that we invest in startups and and look from that perspective. We also look at, we're a kind of centralized, we have a variety of different business units that operate separately. So we're almost like a conglomerate, so to speak. So what we found is executives that can see across these different business units can oftentimes see different patterns than the ones who are in one and only unit because they just work in that particular industry or work with that particular customer segment. Whereas the exec team and maybe a layer lower sometimes has a broader option across these different opportunities and see where the different collisions or collaborations could happen. And so one of the longer term goals with things like Spark is to like, how do we create more of these collisions across the different, different business units? And so that anybody in the organization can start seeing different patterns that they wouldn't necessarily always be exposed to. I would like to pivot a little bit because I, I really want to talk a little bit also to Brian about the Inside Outside Conference in Motion Accelerator and kind of why the heck they needed to exist in Nebraska, <laughs> first and foremost, I think is a very good question to to start with. And then the second thing is like, have you seen as you've built these companies, these products, these projects over time? Yeah. So been lucky enough to, to live and work all over the world. It's based in Asia for a number of years in Hong Kong with Gartner, building out their consulting practice back in the mid 90s. I've lived in Silicon Valley during Com 1.0 and back in Asia during 1.0. Worked with a startup here in Nebraska, helped grow that. But about 10 years ago, 
I'd seen a lot more ecosystems outside of the valley starting to pop up with regard to startups. And we even in our own backyard, we started seeing some early stage companies that were getting some traction that normally would have had to gone to the valley to, to get traction. Companies like Huddle, which is the number one provider of video analytics in the sports space. We're grown from three guys in, at the university to almost 2,000 employees around the world and all this kind of stuff. So we started seeing this starts of different ecosystems. And so I started Motion as a way to kind of, how do we accelerate these opportunities and create a space where if you wanted to build a company, you didn't have to go to New York or or Boston or Silicon Valley to make that happen. And so it was an experiment. Went out and raised a little mini angel fund, got a, um, folks within the university and in the uh, city and local private partners and said, hey, this is what I would like to try to do. I've seen Y Combinator and Techstars have spun up. Uh, let's see if we can make this happen here. So we spun up a little mini angel fund. We started investing in early stage companies. And I think the most important part of that was not just like investing in early stage companies, but it was bringing the mentors and the community around it to say, hey, let's just not meet to have cocktails. Let's meet to actually help companies accelerate what they're building. And those collisions and those conversations changed over time the way people started seeing business creation. And I think in the, in the past, if you looked at uh, creation in maybe the Midwest, it, it was like find a customer, uh, grind it out. Uh, the idea of venture capital or anything along those lines was core. And if most of the people in my backyard have made money from Berkshire Hathaway and value investing and Warren Buffett and the idea of betting on technology or investing some of your capital in very early stage ideas that will probably fail <laughs> was not something that most people did. And so you have to start building the models so that people can see those role models and things that like actually might work if, if you take these steps. And so it was a, an experiment to see if it worked and it Luckily, Fund One did. <laughs> so we raised the fund too, and we're 10 years in, and we still are running in motion as a way to help early stage startups uh, in the software technology and that space going. And I knew it wasn't from a lack of talent. I mean, I don't know if you know, Ev Williams was from Nebraska. Ev went out and started Twitter. Uh, so my goal is in 25 years, the next Ev Williams wouldn't have to go to Silicon Valley to start Twitter. Totally. I love that. And I think that um, on this podcast we've mentioned before. So I'm originally from Mississippi. Tam is from Miami. Like we're from places that typically speaking, when people talk about innovation in tech companies, they don't immediately say it. Tam is a little bit better, right? Because now Miami has become like well, Florida in general has been, become a hotspot because it's a tax haven and people want to leave California, right? There is such an important conversation to be had here about the fact there are so many talented individuals who are outside of the Silicon Valley or New York or Austin. World. And then to your point also, what I thought was really interesting is that, and so I spoke at Brian's conference a few months ago and after after the conference i've spoken to a lot of the companies because honestly there's brilliant products like stuff that i'm just like so as an angel investor how do i get in here but to your point it's actually very interesting because so many of them have been able to create investment from pe firms or other like banking institutions to a certain extent venture is still so new in that area and so if you're a venture capitalist if you're someone who, you know, does VC, you should really be checking out areas like Nebraska. You should be talking to people like Brian because there's a lot of really amazing companies out there that are doing exceptionally well and they don't need any of your money. So <laughs> you might have to, you might have to do some major convincing to get in there, but it's actually really, it's really quite impressive, the ecosystem that currently exists out there. And so I think, Brian, thinking about that ecosystem, um, actually, let's talk about that. Other than knowing you, 
how are some ways that people can find out about what's happening in Nebraska's in the Nebraska's in the Milwaukee's in all these different areas that are yeah. a little bit off of uh, some people's beaten path. When I and Tam, we go everywhere. But for the other people who don't know how to go everywhere, how might they get to know some of these places and get and start to see how amazing these opportunities are? Yeah, thanks. Thank goodness it's not just me pushing everything up the up the hill. I actually have a, a thriving ecosystem now that other people are are players in it. Early days, it was a lot of hey, come come and join our playground and see what it looks like. Nowadays, we've got companies like Generator. They're based out of originally based out of Madison and Milwaukee, but they've sprung up accelerators all over the the Midwest and other places. We actually and then Endmotion, we've just partnered with them a couple of years ago for them to actually run our accelerator. At, when I stepped away from it. And so companies like that who are looking at uh, ecosystems outside and placing a lot of bets in a lot of different ecosystems, their network is very strong. Locally, we've got a lot of involvement from the key players, whether it's the university or even the, the city chamber of commerce kind of peoples who are investing in it. We've got uh, public-private partnerships like Invest Nebraska, which is state-funded dollars for investing in startups. And then, quite frankly, we've got a lot of founders who are very anxious to connect with folks across the, the ecosystem, whether it's in the Midwest or other places. So I would say that uh, we've got a Nebraska nice kind of mentality. So if, if you come to Nebraska, I'll treat you right and try to get you connected. Uh, and, and it's a small ecosystem. So you can come and find me or anybody in the eco- ecosystem, and you're probably one or two degrees separated from the people you need to get to from that perspective. So we try to be opening and open and welcoming to, to new folks that are coming in because we know that we can't build everything ourselves. We don't have enough people or always. And so it's all about how do you make those strong collaborative connections and, and community around it. I, say, I have to second like the generator and also I can second how easy it is to work with Brian because after the conference, I was just like, hey, Brian, I think I want to get more connected to accelerators. I think that's a, a major value add that I had. And immediately he connected me to the folks at Generator. I've already done a couple mentor sessions with their founders. And honestly, again, I was like, I did not know y'all were doing this in like Alabama. And like, again, <laughs> it's very fascinating getting connected with more of these organizations and seeing all the different things that many of these companies are doing. And so, Tam. Two questions, and then we'll wrap up with some takeaways. So finish the sentence for me, Brian. If you're talking to a leader of an organization... And we're saying, hey, your horizon two, horizon three opportunities, you're not getting them internally, right? You're, you've got these initiatives going on. In the next couple of years, you're going to need to be looking for innovation. What are you saying to that leader today about how do they prepare to, to gain that innovation workhorse in the next couple of years? Yeah. So one of the things that we do at Nelnet, and I think one reason why Nelnet is fairly successful from a corporate innovation standpoint is we bet early on that... We wanted to get involved in the startup ecosystem because we wanted to understand and learn what it takes to create a brand new idea and traction from it. And so it's getting our employees to become mentors in particular accelerators, getting our, our people in things like the Nebraska Angels. So we're very active both individually as angels, as well as Nelnet in helping that ecosystem grow, bringing our fellow corporate innovators along the, for the ride and seeing them to folks and getting them to play in that particular space. And I think it's not something that that's natural. And so it takes a while to learn. And so the faster you can get involved in a startup ecosystem and start meeting founders, talking to investors, understanding the lay of the land, um, I think that helps not only 
investing in your Horizon 2, Horizon 3 kind of stuff. But again, starting to learn some of those muscles that you can apply to your H1 stuff back when you go back to the ranch and, and start work, work, working on your own ideas and your own product initiatives. It's not all going to map 100%, but there's a lot of things that you can learn just by the tools that are out there or new ways that founders are thinking or approaching problems that you didn't or weren't exposed to in the past. Brian, tell us about Accelerated. Why should we be buying your book? Yeah, so the book's called Accelerated, A Guide to Innovating at the Pace of Change. It's a short guide, really. It was designed as a, a playbook for some of the things that I've been seeing over the years, both working as startups and then how do you apply that to, to internal innovation. And again, my basic thesis is the fact that everybody's going to have to learn some of these skill sets. The world's changing so fast. If you're not adaptable and able to work in uncertainty, you're going to struggle. And so what are some of the things you can do now to both think uh, and get the frameworks, the tool sets, and the mindsets you need to, to become better prepared for, for the world we're living in? Thank you so much for listening to the Drops Podcast. We love having you. We love your feedback. Please do connect with us across social media. We are the Drops Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. And we also have a great email, thedropspodcast at gmail.com. You can send in any questions that you have, and we definitely would love to answer them on the podcast. Feel free to ask just about anything because we have experienced a ton of different things. Again, thank you so much for listening to the Drops Podcast.